Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. We have a very exciting guest in studio today. We are going to be speaking with Ryan McMillan from Graybow Stocks. Many of you know him from the McMillan uh, stock industry. His grandfather, Gail, started it many, many years ago. I believe it was 1973, and his dad, Kelly McMillan, took it over. Ryan is a former Navy SEAL. Um, he's going to talk a little bit about that, uh, go into a little bit about the mindset, that mental fortitude that parlays into being a successful business person. Um, he's going to talk about what it took in order to get through Bud's training, uh, in order to get through all of the, the SEAL mental, physical, emotional trials and tribulations and being able to just put one foot in front of the other and don't quit. Um, that is what is a successful mindset in the business world. And that is what is successful as a military uh, personnel. So we're going to be talking to him about his military service. And we're also going to be talking about Graybow. Graybow is his uh, rifle stock manufacturing company that uh, is here local in Phoenix, Arizona. Very successful. Um, I have one of those rifles. It was the, one of the original ones that Remington came out with, the AWR, American Wilderness Rifle. They, they are no longer being made, and they are leaps and bounds better uh, stocks than that original one. They still make the Outlander, which is that original entry-level kind of hunting stock. And there's probably five or six uh, different stocks now that are available. Ryan's going to talk about the manufacturing process, what uh, what makes them better than uh, your inexpensive entry-level stocks, and um, just talk a little bit about Graybow. And we hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. This is your host, Chet Gray, along with Mike Ornoski. How are you, Mikey? It's a beautiful day. It's a good day today. Doing good. Amen. We have a very special guest in studio today, Ryan McMillan from Graybow Stocks. We're going to pick his brain about building stocks, the components that go into that, a little bit on his military background, and just what makes him tick to be a a successful businessman in today's world um, and in the constant attack on pro-Second Amendment. Um, there's lots of legislation going on, but without getting into politics, we want to introduce you to Ryan McMillan. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? Better than I deserve. <laughs> Love it. My Dave Ramsey guy. That's <laughs> learning. Right. He's learning. <laughs> every, every time I say that out in the – I mean, I listen to him from time to time, but yep. it doesn't even click. I just – I say that, and everybody's like, oh, you, you read Dave Ramsey, or you read that book. Yep. Um, Ryan, I'm sure a lot of people know who you are. Uh, we have a big following here in Arizona, and we have following outside of Arizona. You are instrumental in the stocks of uh, hunting rifles, precision rifles, a lot of different aspects, um, and starting without jumping too far ahead. If you want to introduce yourself a little bit, and we can – kind of work through the progression since you have such a unique story to tell. Yeah. So I'm Ryan McMillan. Um, I always like to say my first real job was being a Navy SEAL. That was a, an interesting time. I was actually in BUDS during 9-11, BUDS is SEAL training. Uh, so I was actually in SEAL training in, at, when 9-11 happened. So that was a very interesting time. So I enlisted in peacetime and then uh, during training we were at war. So uh, things got crazy, um, so but I had a I had a great time. I spent seven years in the Navy, uh, from up two thousand to the end of two thousand six. I did a couple deployments uh, to Iraq, and then I was in Afghanistan and a bunch of other places around the Middle East, and even in South America a little bit. So I had a lot of fun. I feel like I packed a lot of time and good good time into a small package, right? A lot of 
people that came before me spent 20 years and they didn't get to see any combat and I did nothing but saw combat. So that was, that was really exciting. Um, I got out, um, and I went to uh, work with my dad, um, at McMillan fiberglass. We quickly, I kind of got bored of working at McMillan fiberglass. The company was steady, stable. Uh, there's not a whole lot for me to do. And I went to work there because I kind of felt obligated as a third generation McMillan and I wanted well, obligated is not quite the right word. I wanted to go there. I wanted to continue the legacy on. And, um, uh, but it's quickly, there wasn't a whole lot for me to do. So I'm like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do something. And so I ended up starting a business called McMillan tactical, ended up turning into McMillan firearms manufacturing. Uh, and my dad joined me on that. And, uh, we ended up selling that company in 2013. And then in 2014, very shortly after I started Graybow, um, and been doing that ever since and absolutely loving it. It's very, been very challenging, but, uh, that's what I'm looking for. I don't want, I've never been interested in the easy road. So it's, yeah. been, a, it's been a fun time. You, you <laughs> don't seem like the type to take the low road ever. Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, I, I think that may be one of the reasons why my father and I didn't, we butted heads a lot. I think my father really wanted me to, he wanted to do a lot for me and I didn't want him to do a lot for, for me, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. So, um, uh, I think that's a lot of the reasons why I ended up starting Graybo instead of just feeling like I wanted to take over the, the McMillan company. I didn't want to do that. That was just not something in my, in my blood. I didn't want a handout. And, uh, there's other reasons too, but, uh, that's part of the reason why I started Graybo. I wanted something um, to start on my own. I wanted to do it from zero. And I wanted to have all that experience. And so, and I, I think that was hard on my dad because he, you know, he, he wanted to give these things to me, I think in a, a lot of ways. Right. So, yeah. Providing for your kids and wanting a better livelihood, even I'm sure he had a great livelihood. Um, it's that inner nature of any father wanting to provide and um, that mental fortitude, that mental toughness, not a lot of people have. Uh, that makes you driven. Can we talk about back in the military, a little bit of what that mindset was, what made you want to specifically go into the Navy versus any other uh, branch? I had some experience with Navy, with the SEALs when I was young, my grandfather being a, you know, starting McMillan fiberglass back in 1973. He was instrumental in the Marine Corps M48-1 project. Then as he got more and more well-known, then he started working with the SEAL teams in, uh, I think it was the mid-80s, uh, and started to really know a lot of those guys. And they came around the house, and, and that actually influenced my older, my brother-in-law who married my sister, who was quite a bit older than me, so he was older than me. Anyway, he went in. He didn't quite, he didn't make it through buds, but that whole influence trickled down to me. And as I became of age, um, I just, one day I just decided that's what I want to do. It wasn't something that I wanted to do since I was 10 or 11, like many of the guys that I served with. It was like I was 19, and I'm like, I'm not 100. I, I, there were some things I wanted to do, and, but that one just kind of rose to the top. Uh, I felt like in my position I wanted to, that was my rite of passage as a man, I guess, in a way. I wanted to do something hard, something physically hard, something that was notable. Um, and so that's what I chose because that's kind of what I knew um, because I, I'd, I'd been around those guys for did you pick their brains growing up and just hearing a little bit of their war stories or hearing a little bit about what they went through and, and that's what piqued your interest or uh, what was it specific versus was any other family member in the Navy that you wanted to follow that specific branch or because the Navy SEALs are the hardest to achieve to become that, to have that trident on you versus any other branch? Well, I didn't, I did, I was too young back then to really pick those guys' brains in the, in the mid eighties, early late eighties. I was too young to even know what that was. But like I said, as it trickled to my brother-in-law who was 12 or 13 years older than me and he went into it he, and it, like he absorbed all that information and I, I, him and I were really close. And so he didn't have any war stories because he actually never made it, but he told me a lot of stories about buds and he had trained a lot and that through me, um, kind of sunk in and, when I decided I wanted to go do something of that nature, that was just the first thing that came up. And over, over the years, 
I just had absorbed all that information. I didn't do anything with it early on, but as I kind of realized that's what I, something that I, uh, an area of interest for me, that's what I just kind of gravitated towards. So it wasn't anything, there's no, no great story behind it. No <laughs> war stories that, you know, Dick Marcinko told me and I was inspired. Unfortunately, it's kind of dull, but uh, it was just kind of a, uh, I remember I was in the, I, I wanted to go into the, I, when I decided I wanted to go into the Navy, I was enlisted within a couple months and I was in the Navy within three months after that. So it was a very quick process. Once I decided I made my decision and went. <coughs> and you were already 18 at that point then, correct? Yeah, I was actually 19. Okay. I, think, uh, t- I was 20. It's 20. Wow. Yeah. I had a couple of years of college. So it's interesting the the parallel. So one is your third generation high end manufacturer, McMillan. Mm-hmm. So through time, through osmosis and understanding the stresses of the business, witnessing as a family going through the highs, the lows of having a business with employees and all of that. Then you have your brother in law that was basically through osmosis was preparing you mentally from the side of what of the expectation. So now you do the full circle. You follow in his footsteps, successful, become the SEAL. And you come back with a family and a father that runs a successful business, but growing up through it, through your knowing all of that, then the mental strongness, the challenges, the fearlessness, all of those attributes that a SEAL becomes that basically you never fail and the fear of death does not even reside in you or stress that somebody else can take ownership of you because you're in complete control and you do that mental fortitude. Then you take it back to the business side that that business is going to be successful and it's already successful from day one because you have that mental provision, not provision, but foresight that you, you know what you're going to accomplish and you've already have all the lesson learns and understanding of the trials that your dad went through and the family, which allowed you to be here today through a successful business. Like kind of on the same path, or yeah, I would say some, some of that. I would say you're on the on the right path there. There's some things that, um, you know, I would uh, I would say that are are a little bit different. Um, you know, one of the things they say if if you really want to be honest about seals, it's not like seals don't get scared. Sure, we're human. Sure, no, for sure. But we just know how to overcome that. Uh, that that's that's what I meant. Is so, you know, yes, yeah, yeah. You know how to manage it and yeah. and not have it consume you and create depression. Right. Then then that's run right. away and hide and not deal with it. You're able to identify it, see it, and yeah. rise a plan and to challenge it and go right through that. Whatever that's, it is. That's, that's right. right. I'm I, sorry. Yes. No, no. I and that, and that's really <laughs> that's really a key to business too. Because if you listen to some successful business owners out there now, it's like you can't lose if you don't quit and that's really what it comes down to in business yeah you can spend a lot of money sucking and but a lot of business owners don't have they're not like high iq guys they're just guys who know how to keep moving forward and just relentlessly doing it that's the that's the word that i use to describe business owners and is relentless if i had one word to describe myself it would be relentless because i'm not the smartest guy that that's there i'm not the best leader i don't I've got a lot of flaws, but I just keep moving forward every single day. And there are days where I'm scared to death because, you know, payroll or there's a lot of times that are, that have been diff- very difficult along this journey. Uh, and there's a lot of people counting on me, my employees, my family to make it all happen. Yep. And, um, you can't curl up in a ball and suck your thumb. You got to keep moving forward. And that's a really hard thing to do. And you gotta, you know, you've got to be able to to understand how to navigate those situations in stressful times. You can't just lock up. And so I think that's a big, a big thing on how people become successful. I don't think it's like you're the smartest guy in the world. I mean, I think it's more like just keep moving forward and finding a, finding a path. Yep. It's true. And I'm a former business owner. I don't think a lot of people knew this, but I owned an electrical contracting business for five years and I had 11 employees and and I remember my payroll getting up to $40,000 a month with what I owe. Just each month, I had to have $40,000 back in 2002-ish, I'm guessing, somewhere in there. And I remember there was some hard decisions I had to make that were the things that I loved about the business mm-hmm. that I actually had to cut off some of those relationships because they were not a positive influence. I had to go in a completely different direction and realize that <clears throat> that ceiling has been met and it was time to go into other options. And I'm sure you see that as a business owner, as you're building the business, there's certain things that you may enjoy, but you actually have to 
leave that paradigm and go to a completely different paradigm to keep the business moving and to be active with what what the customers want. Yeah, yeah every day, every cha- there's a new <clears throat> challenge all the time, and a lot of them are big. Um, every business has its own challenges. Um, I feel like sometimes I think my business is the hardest one you could ever run. Um, we make all of our own stuff. We're a molding company, so molding is very difficult to discipline. I, I machine parts, too, and molding is exponentially more difficult to do. Um, I have employees. I have machines, <coughs> equipment, loans, everything you can think of, and, and I, I'm sure there are businesses out there that are more difficult than mine, but sometimes it feels like I'm running the most difficult business in the world because there are there's so much... Yep. Uh, expense we don't we don't outsource hardly anything we make everything and that was a decision not that i i made in the beginning but i I continuously make when people let you down i would much rather rely on myself even if it means i have to take another loan out for another machine or whatever it means Uh, it's really hard because you're the you care about your business more than anybody else does and so you obviously have to have suppliers and vendors there's no way of getting around that but if you can make stuff yourself you're much better off because then your customers you, you can't point your finger at anybody else but yourself when you can't deliver what you promised and to me that's been a really <clears throat> that's been a really big thing for me um, and it's been a hard road because there's so much mo- outlay of money and capital in in that type of thinking sure but i just know every day <clears throat> that that's the way it's supposed to be exactly so then now you have employees that may not have your expectation of workmanship craftsmanship that high end of, of what you're envisioning because we're all made differently and we all are, we work differently. But then from an owner perspective, this is where I struggled because my employees, I expected them to be at this, this level that they can never, ever achieve. And I had to learn that the hard way because my expectation is not their expectation because they're an employee and they're there to do a job to the best of their ability. But a lot of times their ability isn't to my, my expectation as an electrical guy. So talk about that and with the, with the image and, the quality and everything that these customers that everybody's listening to that buy your products, why that, that threshold is so high and how that as a business owner, you actually hold those employees that same standard and how you're constantly thriving to, to push that standard even higher when that employee line may be at a lower, but then you're pulling them and you're actually growing and stretching. That's what separates the difference between other companies and, and big box stores that basically just mass produce that don't have that attention to detail. That makes sense? Yeah. So the one thing that really comes to mind right off the bat when you talk about that is process. I think about this a lot. When I first started business, I didn't really understand the value of processes, and it sounded like some kind of far-off fairy dust thing. But when you really start to dig into it and you see some businesses fail and and, and you start to understand why they fail um, and how businesses are successful and at the end of the day, why companies acquire businesses what are they acquiring when they acquire they're acquiring your process and the process is you how you uniquely do your thing how you uniquely make your product that is everything and so process is so important because in all reality you should be able to plug decent people into that process and have a good outcome Um, obviously you want a players on your team you get a players and you have a great team but you don't have i mean if if you have a good process you don't always have to have a players to at least produce a product or a service that's that's valuable so the process to me is so important and so we focus a lot on that obviously we focus a lot on our people too our people are really important um but if they don't have a good process to follow they're like they're just like treading water in the middle of an ocean with nowhere to go exactly yep fantastic going back a little bit um kind of off air, we were talking about the psychology that gets you into that mind frame, that mindset in order to be successful. Um, in order for you to have that discipline to go through any, any service member, any veteran that goes through any type of basic training, hats off. And then there's the elite units like yours, the Navy SEALs, that everybody – thinks they know what what it entails. And without going into detail, um, no one can imagine, just like anyone going through tough times, this would be something positive because you're, you're wanting it, you're achieving it. And even though it's, you know, the, the nickname embrace the suck, 
you're wanting to be a Navy SEAL. People that are struggling on the streets, you know, it, that's not the same correlation or the same um, – it, it's not even in the same ball game as far as what it takes because they're not wanting to be there either. However, you can't walk – you know, you can't describe what someone's going through if you've never walked a mile in their shoes and I, I, I don't know why I went through that adjective of someone living on the streets or going through dire straits, but you can only say so much, and it has to take that inner, that inner will in order for them to succeed. Someone that's, you know, going through anything, they have to want it more than anything. You can tell them till you're blue in the face. You can, you know, root them on, but the person has to want it, and there's a certain desire to succeed for the people that go through your type of training, that go through that type of not just, you know, physical fitness, mental aptitude, defensive tactics, um, interpersonal and behavior, the communication, the team building. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's always, you know, lay persons that are not in there. They have like these graphs and what – you would think, you know, the high high aptitude, um, phenomenal shape, but hothead is not going to make that team per se. The person that is one heck of a, you know, give you their shirt off their back, great team player, but in great or in horrible shape isn't going to make it. And there's that medium in between that everybody's looking at for that success. I know that was kind of long-winded, but in order for all those to succeed and all that for to, to come together, how has that helped you in the military and how has that parlayed into running a successful business? Uh, I look back on, I look back as I get older, I didn't, I didn't understand that a lot when I was, when I was younger, right out of the military. But when I look back now, and I'm sure I'm going to learn things as I get older. But I look back at really the SEAL training itself and how important that some of the things that we did, some of the challenges that we had to overcome, some of the mental toughness that we had to go through. Um, you know, the funny thing is one of the hardest days is Sunday um, because it's like you know you got another week ahead of you and it's going to be hell. And that's when actually most people quit on Monday morning before we start because everybody knows – I got another week and that's a real mental game that people don't like to play. It's all mental. I mean, yeah, you got to run, you got to swim and that's physical, but really if you think about it, pushing yourself to those limits, your brain has to allow you to do that. Either you're going to quit or you're not. People who don't quit and people who are willing to push themselves to the edge will physically, their bodies will physically give up before their brain does. And those are the types of people that'll win, that'll succeed and that'll become SEALs. Um, and there's a number of people who end up doing that in one way or another, whether it's on a run, on a swim, on some um, evolution where, you know, you're doing something underwater. Um, I've seen a lot of people pass out. I've seen lots of people faint, do all kinds of stuff. That they drown, took, I'm sure. Drown, took their bodies all the way to the edge, and they mentally they were still in it. That's the difference. That's what is really hard when you're doing your 50 meter underwater swim. Just for an example, because there's many of these types of things, but doing your 50 meter underwater swim, and you're like 25, 30 meters into it, and you're already like what we call chicken necking, where your your body's trying to grasp for air, but you can't get it because your mouth is closed underwater. Most people want to come up right then. You've got to overcome that extreme urge to go up for air, and 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 then you got to keep going. Um, and that's a, and that's a really hard thing for people to do. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what that's what seals that's what seal training does. That's re, I mean, really, that's the essence of what seal training does. Is it gets it it pushes you every single day a little bit farther physically, mentally than you thought you could the day before. And that's when I was, we were talking about being relentless. That's the word. That's the word. Relentless. Every day you wake up, I'm going to push myself a little bit harder today. It's going to hurt. It's going to suck physically, mentally. I'm going to be 
I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be tired. I'm going to be sad. I'm going to be homesick. I'm going to be afraid. I'm going to be all these things, and I'm still going to go. And that's the, that's the difference. That's awesome. <laughs> and with businesses being so cutthroat and so much um, outside looking in, a lot of people are willing to take shortcuts. A lot of people are willing to, in any business, much less, you know, this industry, take the shortcut, cut people's necks off, you know, to to make them better. And then they still may not be successful. What, how has that mental fortitude that you've learned in those seven years while you were in the military helped you not take no for an answer and to keep pushing forward and to be relentless? Relentless. Well, I think it starts from just, you just have this drive in you as a young man, like I, when I started um, as a SEAL and even today as a, as a military guy. And um, I just wanted, I just want, I don't want to leave this life with, with a lot of regrets. You're going to have, but you know what I mean? I, I want, to, I want to push every single day as hard as I can. And there's days I like, man, I didn't do as much as I should have today. But at the end of the day, I want to, I want to leave it all in the field. Um, and there are days where I'm tired and I'm like, oh, I don't need to go for a run today. And I fail too in the, at that. But I think as a body of work, you look at your life as a body of work, um, it's been pretty good. And uh, every single day with this business, it's another challenge like Bud's, I feel like. Every single day there's another challenge and every single day I, I, I'm, I got to keep laying it, put it, laying it on the field and leaving it on the field. That's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, I I mean, a lot of people don't have that discipline. Um, it is easy to give up. It's much harder to fight. Um, that fight-or-flight instinct in a lot of people, it's very easy to, to run away to start singing the crying game and rocking yourself to sleep in the corner versus attacking whatever it is, a business deal, talking to a bank, getting the the right molding, getting the right tools in order to make that, getting the right camo color or you know whatever whatever it is um let's jump into a little bit on starting graybo one i think you have a unique story on the name right on how how you came up with that name and then two what was the first couple stocks that you made and and why those yeah so the name graybo is my two sons um grayson Calm Gray and Bo. Bo is actually older, but it, it sounded better Gray Bo than Bo Gray. <laughs> so that's I like it. I like that's it. how we did it. And McMillan was already taken, so I can right. <laughs> so, um, and then my first products were the Outlander and the Renegade, and it's an interesting thing because when we started, we the whole premise behind the company was I watched what they were doing at McMillan and as much respect as I have for that company and and my grandfather and my dad, I just like, we, there's gotta be a better way to make stocks. There's gotta be a more efficient way to do this. Uh, And I saw that there was a huge part of the market opportunity that was not being captured. um, And that like, Hey, I could go do, I could do this. And so I ended up starting the whole company with a new process in mind. So, the new process was new enough so I, that I didn't want to go crazy on my product. I wanted uh, the product to be something understood, well-known, and easy for us. So the Outlander is a very simple stock. It's your traditional hunting stock. And the Renegade, your very traditional, non-adjustable, tactical stock. And so neither of these stocks were, had any adjustment in it. They were just one piece, no complicated, not a whole lot of uh, a hardware. Um, we just wanted to really get our understanding of our process down and, and create some stocks that had good quality, but they didn't have the bells, a lot of bells and whistles. Um, and then as we started to get more comfortable with how we were molding stocks and our processes, we started getting, you know, building stocks that were much more complicated and, and, um, and, you know, had more features. And so that's kind of in a very short way. That's the, that's the, was the progression and why we did what we did in the beginning versus what we're doing now where we're making some very complex parts. And so we under really understand our process now, 
we're using unique materials. We have, you know, a number of different finishes and, and, um, and, and we're just, I think, now breaking the ice and some of the, some of the really cool things that we're going to be able to do. Okay, so a guy like me who's an archery guy, I'm, mm-hmm. all my guns are, you know, they're just standard guns, nothing fancy. We use them for basic hunting. So somebody like myself, and I'm sure there's a lot of people like myself because a lot of us just go buy something off the shelf and we shoot it. So what is the difference? So, like I, like so for instance, I have my old Remington BDL 700. 30 out six mm-hmm. had it for 30 years got the wood stock so why would i have interest in upgrading a stock to make me a better shot shooter and all of the things as it relates to that gun can you kind of just walk through why somebody would buy a firearm then from there want to go and take that stock off and to upgrade it based on all your technologies and what, it, what that's going to do for the end user yeah so typically when you buy a stock a rifle now um, it's probably got a plastic stock on it. Correct. It might have a wood stock, but it's probably got a plastic stock. Correct. That's what that's the that's the configuration that most of these companies sell them uh, in into this you know Cabela's and sure Mass that's what Pro. that's what and that's what we do for our raffles. They're all synthetic, exactly. Yeah. So there's some inherent. The, the, let me start by saying the reason why the rifle companies do that is because that's the cheapest way to get the the most volume they can. Rifle companies have to hit a certain price point because they know how many rifles they're going to sell at these price points. So as they do their distribution, um, they know at seven ninety nine they're going to sell this many, eight ninety nine, ninety ninety nine. So they they're before they even have the components of the rifle. In most cases, I can't say in all, but most that I've seen, they're looking for they have their price point. And they're like, we have to build a rifle for this price. So most of the time, you're getting that plastic stock because it's super cheap, yep. and you can make a buttload of them uh it's the only you know that's the only stock you can make a lot of them in, in a short period of time so it fills that that gap of they need the volume and they need the price point so but what a, what a, a shooter might want to do as he as he buys a, a <coughs> rifle and, and he's serious about it and he understands that there's a potential to upgrade the reason why you would want to upgrade let's say to a composite which in my opinion, and I believe I could go to toe-to-toe with anybody on this and on why I believe this and why it's true, but composites like fiberglass or carbon fiber are by far the best material you should use. Plastics will move in the environment, right? So first of all, plastic stocks, the way that they're made, they already are designed to touch the barrel. That's just how they're designed. You look at any pla- most plastic <coughs> stocks out there, you, you, you find the rifle, and then the, the, the plastic stock is literally touching the barrel. Well, if, if you have anything touching the barrel, your, your shots aren't going to be off. Your, are, your shots are going to be off. So the harmonics of the barrel are what really dictate the consistency of your shots. But if you have something touching your barrel, your harmonics are going to be off and you get inconsistencies. So that's number one. It's going to sh- it's going to throw you the consistency of your ac- and your accuracy off. See, as an archer, so I'm going to stop you. So as yeah. an archer... If my veins are hitting, hitting my rest when it's going, it's going to deflect and go right or left. So it's like with the, are the new dropaways, it, it drops. A lot of people like to use the whisker biscuit where the veins are going through this whisk, this thing that basically it's going through these whiskers, which is deflection, mm-hmm. which changes your shot, and you can't be a consistent shot with that. But with the dropaways, the arrow is free-flighting all the way through from the time it leaves. So, so I never even say, now, see, now it makes sense because – all my guns are all probably laying on top of the wood and the, the stocks, and that's why I feel good about my grapefruit shot at 100 yards. And everybody's like, "No, you got to be down to a dime." And I'm like, "No, nah, it's yeah. good enough for hunting." But that's true. And then as you get more accurate, that's why we probably have a lot of misses when we start going over 100 yards and things like that. And when you're not on a bench, yeah. If you're going to shoot 100 yards and you're shooting a big animal, you know, maybe it's not a big deal. But as you get out to three, four hundred yards, and yep. you know. Yeah, that, that matters a lot because you're going to have a lot lot of potential air in your shot. Human air, obviously, if yep. you're tired, you know, you're hiking through the mountains, you're breathing, all that stuff's going to be. And then you, on top of that, you're going to have air within the system itself, the rifle system. So you want to eliminate as much of that potential air as you can. So that's the first thing you do is you take off that, that crappy stock because it's going to, it's going to, it's not going to do you any favors. Really? And the reason why you put a, a fiberglass yeah. stock or Got a it. carbon fiber stock is because they do are not affected by environment. They, this is a test that the reason why the Marine Corps went with the McMillan back in the mid-70s 
was because w- this was one of the distinctive tests that they knew. And wood's the same way, by the way. If you if you if you get wood wet, it moves. That's exactly true. Yeah, it's true. So composites don't. You can get composites wet. I use composites as a general term for fiberglass and sure. fiber, but you can get them wet. You can heat them up to a certain degree, like four or five hundred degrees. Depend. There's some depending, but uh, you know, negative zero or mm-hmm. ne- below zero, so negative uh, temperatures. And the, and the Marine Corps did all this, and you don't have any deflection. And that is, and and it doesn't. The stocks don't get brittle in the cold. Well, like plastic will get brittle. Um, I don't know about wood if wood gets brittle or not in the cold, but you just have all kinds of issues yep. in the different. Um, with the different environments with plastic and wood where you just do you just el- eliminate all those issues with composites makes perfect sense so now he has no excuse because he has all those high-end nice stocks and I shoot him still so so, it is, so it's so I'm just a better shot than you chat that's all <laughs> just kidding well just kidding. You're ju- I mean we're talking about that yeah, the, the the the, the less true. expensive ones it's true so if if you're hunting right if you're on a kid yeah and you have any type of setup, mm-hmm. um, the the plastic ones aren't allowed. I mean, you could use the jaws like a triclops and and squeeze it in there, but then that's going to touch and affect the harmonics. Then if you lay prone and have it on a bag, it's pushing up. Like a, I've had, you know, a less expensive, those Thompson centers that, yep. um, that shoot great. They can kill... Plenty of animals, but if you lay prone and you put that backpack out there or whatever your you know a shooting bag, and you lay that, I venture to say everybody's going to see that barrel touch the plastic stock, and then you're going to affect it. So if you even if you did bullet development and came up with a great load, and then you go to six thousand feet elevation, yep. it changes it. Then you've hiked, as Ryan, you know, indicated, you're out of breath. So then your breathing changes it. And then now you are laying it down on a rock on your backpack. And you were on a bench at 100 yards at Phoenix's elevation, as an example. And then, holy crap, I missed. I just zeroed this. It, it should be dead on. Why isn't it? And... Just as an example, that's one of the reasons why. No, um, you're exactly. I'm thinking in my head at least 20 situations in my lifetime that I've helped people with rifles, cheap synthetic stocks. They're pushing that stock on top of something to get a steady rest. It could be a tree limb. We've done on boulders. We've done backpacks and put stuff on there. And they've always missed high. I just ding, 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 ding. That's why. Because we are deflecting that. I have never see yes. just that reason right there alone shows you the importance of what you're doing because think about all that time investment in hunting. You have that shot, then we lay our barrel, you know, the barrel's out there, then all of a sudden that stock's on top of something and we're deflecting and at that long distance we're shooting high and we're wondering why how we shoot it high. Took, it took us that long to get the tag to begin with. Yeah. I know. And then the, you the, want to capitalize on it because we're in Arizona or any exactly state. True. And you're like, man, I'm here. There's that buck. There's the coos deer. There's the mule deer. There's the elk. And it's exactly true. Like that. Say old school. You're putting it in the crutch, you know, of of a tree. It's, it's all those. I mean, I witnessed it. So now I'm thinking their price point, $1,000 or less with all these manufacturers, all those barrels are laying on top of the plastic. And so basically everybody's buying a $1,000 gun thinking they invest a whole bunch of money. And they buy the scope, and really, they're causing themselves a disservice by not changing out the stock. See? You talked to an archery guy, and <laughs> yes. it's starting to work, see? <laughs> yes. I knew nothing. <laughs> see? All right, see? Um, I made it. Nice yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. I guess I'm getting me a new stock. <laughs> Gray bow it is. That's All right. right. That's All right. right. Woohoo! Do you think, um, <laughs> Got it. going back to the Outlander, which I have still very, like you said, traditional... Remington style stock, um, not the Monte Carlo like like a um, oh the name escapes me. Um, some of the other ones like a Weatherby that uses a Monte Carlo t- style stock, and you've had one of yours that is like that. But Remington was correct me if I'm wrong. The first company to carry yours on 
a, a hunting rifle that you could go to a store and buy from, correct? Yeah, they're actually how how we really we got we got our start. Um, the so American the AWR, Wilderness. Yeah, AWR, yeah. And so we, we did the Outlander in that, and that was a, a good project for us. And it was a great project for us. And then they went out of business, and that was a problem. Oh, dang it, Remington. <laughs> oh, know. man. They went out of business, uh, you yep. know. Um, and Ruger bought them, right? I think. Did uh, Ruger, Remington did Ruger, Ruger, They separated yeah. into like yeah. five different oh, did they? Okay. subsidiaries. Okay. Ruger ended up with uh, Marlin, which was a Remington company. Oh, that's right. That's right. Um, at the time. <clears throat> so That's right. The lawsuits, yeah. which whole nother topic, but yeah. that is when I first found out about Graybow yeah. and did my research because I wanted a long range in a thirty caliber, three hundred Remington Ultra Mag in the rum or in in a in the Graybow, the kind of a brown finish with a black speckle. If anyone remembers that, twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen. Yeah, I think it. Technically, the first ones we sent out were 2016. Okay. Maybe they hard launched it 2017, if I remember. Okay. And then we did that for them for a year, maybe two, and then they uh, they went. That's when they went out. And then, <coughs> correct me if I'm wrong on this. Bergara would be the second big manufacturer. I think technically we did get Bergara on second. Uh, we also brought on Winchester. Okay. Um. Uh, those are the big. Those are the big names. We have some some other medium to smaller size uh, companies that we brought on too. But as far as the big names that you'll see in like a Cabela's or something, yeah, those are the those were the three. And then we brought on CVA as a, they're a muzzle loading company. Not long after, all kind of in the same time frame, two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen. Um, so yeah, and that shared a lot of the same that Bergara has. Correct that it was a similar stock that was used on yeah. their muzzle loader that yep. Bergara was using on one of their hunting rifles. Yeah, Bergara Bergara bought three of our different stocks. And so um, they bought the Ridgeback, the Terrain, and the Outlander. And um, and then CVA, when they jumped on board, they bought the Outlander and the Terrain. Okay. And they didn't do the Ridgeback. Um, so those, so those, there were some similarities between those two for sure. And then obviously Remington was, uh, had the, uh, the Outlander. And then we um, we made a proprietary stock. It was it was really the Renegade, but we it was a, kind of a proprietary stock for Winchester. Um, so so yeah, most of those bigger companies again they're really looking to try to hit a price point. Even if they're going to upgrade, they're still got to hit a price. So most of the stocks that we sell um, are going to be your not non adjustables, right? Um, you know, because they're they're the they're the cheapest to make, and then we sell we can sell those for cheaper, and we can actually make more of those because they're less complicated, and so that's typically what um, the bigger companies gravitate towards. Yeah, and like like the Outlander, I have um, because you can't adjust the cheek weld on that. I have an extra pack on there that one lifts it up depending on how big your how tall your rings are, how big of a optics you have, and it carries you know, whether a dope card or extra extra ammo on it, and it, one, protects it, and it raises your cheek so that you have a better um, a better cheek weld. And with doing that, without having to change the whole stock, and like you said, it came in at a relatively inexpensive. Remington came in, I think, at nine ninety nine and ran it for sometimes on sale at eight ninety nine. But you were getting a high quality aftermarket stock on a factory rifle, um, and not not getting into the the less expensive, and you're not having to get into the fifteen two thousand dollar range, and still go out there and you know have repeatable success on on the point of impact and point of aim. Um, what was the stock that first changed it so that people had it just adjustable length of pull and the adjustable uh, cheek cheek riser? Uh, the Ridgeback was the first one that we had all the adjustment on. We kind of went full once we once we uh, got our feet wet with our processes. Um, we felt confident and we went kind of all in on the Ridgeback. Those we had um, M lock plates that we put on there. It was a DVM. We we had adjustable. Uh, cheek riser, adjustable length of pull. So it had all the bells and whistles for a tactical stock. 
like an up, upper end tactical stock. So yeah, that was it. And for everybody listening, can you tell them what DBM, the detachable yeah. bottom? Yeah, so DBM stands for detachable box magazine. It, it's it's the interface that um, is between the stock and the magazine. It's the piece that holds the magazine into the stock. And so, um, but that term itself is just synonymous for that stock having a, ma- a capacity to, to accept a magazine um, in contrast to like a BDL where it's just, uh, you know, you, it's loaded within the stock, within the stock. Um, so like a, the standard Remington footprint that you open up that bottom and it, it kind of has a spring yep. that holds those rounds in there for everybody listening versus it's not like a magazine on a, on a handgun, but it is in a sense that you can load them separately. You could have that extra magazine in your pack already preloaded and if you missed your first five shots and you have a five round mag then you you can load that magazine in those dbms and you were starting to come out with your own correct yeah we do have our own we've had them now for quite a bit okay Um, so yeah if you go on our website and you buy a stock you can get the bottom metal any bottom metal we actually offer three different types um bottom metal is a general term for the dbm bdl anything that accepts the the rounds um but we offer three different types. Two of them are detachable box magazines. Um, and the other one is that hinge floor plate that you talk about. Some people really still like the hinge floor plate. Um, they don't want, um, you know, traditionally magazines rattle a little bit. They can get caught on things. So as a hunter, they like the, the flush fit and they don't like the rattle. But with technology advancing in the magazine area nowadays, there's actually a lot of good magazines that will do exactly that we call flush fit magazines they are only three rounders but they fit in there and they'll they're technically detachable and uh, they don't they don't really make any noise either so it's becoming almost like we're not even going to need a hinge floor plate anymore but you know there's still people out there who like that who are used to the traditional hinge floor plate and, and still buy it so we make it but but technically the dbms will do will do what what it what what's needed um, and keeping that process in-house, like you said, no one has um, more stringent guidelines and wants to have the best product than than you. And being able to manufacture and do all that, you have those tight tolerances so that it doesn't rattle like older ones would do that, you know, mm-hmm. it just doesn't have that tight tolerance. And <clears throat> you're, you know, whether you're carrying it uh, over your shoulder or in a backpack, um, and it, you know, we're, you're being loud anyway, but you can hear it. Yeah. Those little things are what adds up to the customer service of having mm-hmm. the the good quality products. It has the tight tolerance and it has repeatable or repeatability in order for it to, you know, shoot where you want it to shoot. The the leaps and bounds from going from fiberglass into a higher price point of a chassis or using carbon fiber what what dictates um moving into that realm for someone that is new to shooting or new or even if they're experienced hunter offset of the weight um because it sometimes it's negligible what would they why would they want to move into that i'm going to try to keep this as short as i can (laughs) because i could talk about this all day um why a person might go to a chassis, which a chassis is really just defined as an aluminum stock that is modular, right? That, um, why would you, why would you might go to that because of the modularity, because of all the adjustments that can be made? The reason why chassis exists in at all is because traditional fiberglass stock manufacturers haven't been able to figure out how to make a stock to where all that adjustment that a chassis can give you um, can be done in a, in a fiberglass stock. You can get some adjustment, but just not nearly the amount of adjustment. So when it comes to, you know, shooting competition and very high-end precision rifles, chassis tend to be the way people go. But there's some, there's some d- downfall to chassis too. Um, aluminum gets cold, it gets hot. It, it, it'll absorb the temperature outside, basically. Yeah. So people don't like that. Um, it, 
it does not absorb recoil coil at all. It, you're going to feel every ounce of energy that, that that gun puts off. So those are some, some things that um, are, are negatives for chassis, but they allow that modularity. Um, why to go to carbon fiber? Fiberglass and carbon fiber are very, very similar. And they are even similar in the way that they're made. Really all carbon fiber is, it's a slightly different material that is synonymous with being a little bit lighter weight, a little bit more higher um, performance. And so, but if you really want to understand why people go to carbon fiber, it's because it looks cool. <laughs> it looks cool, and there's this there's this weight savings that you get um, in the traditional way of making stocks. It's so still really strong. It's still really strong. So, but let what I want to be very clear about is this fiberglass is very strong too. Actually, yep. fiberglass is typically pound for pound carbon fiber stronger, but when you when you lay fiberglass in versus carbon fiber, you're going to get a heavier stock, but the fiberglass is 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 strong. It, there's there's nothing there's when you look at a fiberglass stock next to a carbon fiber stock, they're going to be basically the same strength. Um, so that's the easiest way I can break down why you would want to move up to a carbon fiber or a chassis stock. And there's so much in that they, they can go into that, especially with our product and why why we're doing what we're doing and, and the way we go about making our product versus everybody else because we make our product a lot different than everybody else makes their product and there's a reason for it and buried within that question is the reasons um for why we do what we do all those little <coughs> proprietary ins and outs that make it cost what it costs perform the way it does and last as long as it does right yeah so the way you make a, a, a carbon fiber or a um, fiberglass stock traditionally is, is really what's the carbon fiber is the shell. It's the, it's the outside layer. Same with the fiberglass. And then you stuff the innards with um, some other material that's super lightweight. Um, we don't do that. And then you machine out the barrel channel and you machine out the inlet. And we don't do it that way. And we think there's some flaws with that. We actually mold the whole inlet in. So we have consistency in the inlet. And the material is super strong within the inlet because all the energy is transferred from that recoil lug, which is in the inlet, to the shooter. And um, all of that, when you machine into a, a piece of material, that's where you get the ch opportunity to maybe damage it. Um, and so now your, your recoil lug and all your energy is going back on a machine piece of material and you have potential for air there. There's all kinds of other reasons but we mold in our inlets for a number of reasons, and we think it's much better, much stronger. It makes for a much better product than a traditional machined-out inlet like you'll see in carbon fiber, traditional carbon fiber and fiberglass stocks. So I'm going simplistic on it. So basically you're recreating a fiberglass boat. Look at all the boats we have in this world that are fiberglass mm -hmm. that get beat up, and they're all basically built – you know, as, as you said, they're basically like in a mold. All of our boats are fiberglass. Mm -hmm. They got the motor, they're hitting all the stuff, and they very feely get damaged, and they last a lifetime. I have a friend that's got one still 40 years old, and that fiberglass is still pristine because it's always been grudge-kept. So it's almost like that same, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain, but, it, but it's true. So you're basically creating something that is a lifetime investment based on the, the strength and the durability and everything else, and it compares to almost all those boatings that we see in every lake that's out there just going 80 miles an hour, these big motors and hitting these hard waves and everything on the ocean. It's almost the same thing. Am I on the right path there? Yeah. Because yeah. the same thing, because that's what the boat manufacturers do. And they don't go to carbon out there. Well, that's exactly the point. Why don't they? Because the weight doesn't matter that much. Exactly. Fiberglass is plenty strong. And, yep. and you have to quantify this, but fiberglass is as strong as carbon fiber. It's just how much you're putting in there you know what i mean exactly. it's like Got it's, a, it's, it's per true. weight per uh, it's true. Uh, per strength but the fact is car there's fiberglasses in a lot of cases is much stronger than carbon fiber but yep. it's all about the weight so yep um and a little bit of weight difference you'll never notice it really anyway especially yeah it's it's so minor and that's depends on depends on the the, the the application for your for your firearm right if you're hunting yeah every ounce counts but if you're going and, and you're shooting competition or you're plinking or whatever, most of the time that doesn't matter. So 
Um, every, that's how we have to think about stocks. It's like, what application are we going after? Yep. And that's what the beauty about what we do and, and, and um, how we make stocks. We formulate every single, um, every single stock that we have is formulated specifically for that stock. Whereas if, you, if you're an aluminum chassis maker, you've got one material, and that's aluminum. And you can't do anything about the weight of that material. The only way you can make that lighter or heavier is through the geometry and the way you design the product. For us, we have multiple ways that we can make it light. And in these multi -dim multiple dimensions in which we can make the stock light, strong, look good, perform, we have ways in which we can, multiple ways in which we can do that yep. through design, our, the geometry of the design, through the material that we use. And that gives Probably. us a ton of flexibility. And that's why ultimately fiber uh, composites will in five or 10 years, I don't think you'll see many chassis stocks left because in the past molding composites was so hard that that's why chassis stocks got their break. But in a few years, there's not going to be much need for aluminum anymore because we're molding right now. We're molding, composites stronger than aluminum and um, we're never really wow. launched this yet because it's kind of a new technology but but there's no there's going to be no reason for for that it's my prediction in five or ten years and much lighter weight much lighter weight it's actually going to be stronger it's going to be better on recoil because it absorbs recoil it doesn't get hot doesn't get cold the materials and and at volume i can make i can make it more efficiently now, small volumes, I have to make the molds. All the upfront costs of making molds is expensive. But once the mold's made and once you start making a lot of them, I can, I can pump Most out produce, stocks yeah. much faster than someone can machine a stock. Interesting. Yeah. Can you walk us through the ones that you currently have right now, all your stocks for everybody that yeah. wants to look on, on Graybow, on your website and on social media, and then just quickly describe the, the pluses and minuses or the differences between them? Yeah. So the Outlander is our you know, basic hunting stock um it's got there's two front two studs that's it that's all you get then a pad you know um, very simple very traditional and it's our you know our cheapest stock to buy and that's we you know we do that on purpose we leave that there for for people who want that simplicity and want the traditional look and feel um, our next one up is a terrain it's basically like the the outlander but it's got a few upgrades where it's got a, a raised cheek comb a little bit wider barrel channel so that you can fit like a, up to a varmint barrel in there or the Outlander, it's really thin hunting style barrels. You can only really fit up to a Magnum a caliber, a barrel contour in there. So the train gives you a little bit more options. A little bit heavier, but it also gives you a little bit more options. Um, the next one is the Ridgeback. Uh, that's the, the one with all the bells and whistles. That's a competition stock where, you know, you go out to the range and, you know, you can put all your goodies on the front. It's got an M-lock adaptability. It's got the cheek uh, comb that you can raise up and down. It's got the length of pull adjustments that you can you have it's got adaptability for picatinny rails all the stuff wow so that's that um the trekker which it was our which was our most unique stock um it's the most unique stock on the market if you look at it, most people are like holy cow what is that and then it kind of grows on them but we basically said how do we make the lightest stock possible and the way that we make stocks is different than anybody so our geometry can be different in a lot of ways whereas you make a traditional carbon fiber fiberglass stock you there's only so much geometry you can deal with it's hard i can't explain that now so i'm not going to get it into it would be a whole other podcast it'd be a whole other podcast but um we basically have if you, if you if you turn the stock upside down and you look at the butt it looks like a taco shell because there's no need there's no need for you to have all this meat in the butt area there's no need at all all you need is some structure for you to put your face on so um that's our lightest weight stock it's the most lean stock it's unique it gets people's attention um, the next one is the Phoenix, by far our most selling, uh, highest selling stock. Um, that one is basically what we call our long range hunter. Um, it's got the vertical pistol grip. Um, it's a little bit bigger for a hunting stock, but it's got all the adjustment, but it's still, still in the hunting category. But you can also take it to the range, and it's got a relatively stable platform on it too. So it's a very versatile stock and by far our biggest selling stock. Um, and and. The great thing about that stock and all of our stocks that have the cheek adjustability, we've designed our hardware, I guess you could say, for the cheek piece. We've designed it so that we, it's very lightweight. So if you, if you look at most 
stocks that have cheek piece adjustability, it's heavy back there because it's a lot of hardware and, and, and you just have to have a heavy type of material to support the hardware itself. We've kind of done away with all that. We very little extra weight to our adjustments. So that's really cool and that people love that. So our, that stock comparatively to the rest of the stocks in the market, it's like six to eight ounces lighter than anything else. So it's, it's been a that's great huge. seller for us. Um, what else do we have? Um, the, we just launched the Eagle. The Eagle is kind of like our outlander, but with more of our new style geometry. Um, it's hard to explain the geometry, but uh, we've got a little bit more geometry to it. We've got an adjustable and a non-adjustable version, um, but a lot like the Outlander in as far as its features, but, um, but the geometry is uh, unique. I'm missing one too. Oh, the Renegade. So the Renegade uh, is just our, our baseline um, tactical stock. It was one of the, right after the Outlander is the one we made second. Actually, the Outlander and the Renegade were first together. And so it's our baseline tactical stock. Um, it's fantastic. Yeah, so that's our lineup. I love it. And you guys started with Remington Inlets, and then I think Tikas are very, very popular now. You guys have expanded onto those. Are there any other, any other types of barreled actions that you can use and interface with your stocks? Well, any Remington clone. So there's lots of I mean, almost, I think it's 70 to 80% of all actions out there right now that are being used on a regular basis are Remington's or Remington clones. Remington 700's or Remington 700 Correct. clones. So let me be clear. So that covers the vast majority of the market. We have some Tikas and then there's a, you know, there's three or four other significant uh, brands out there that we need to uh, make, stock, uh, make inlets for, uh, which is just a matter of getting to it. It's, you just never have enough, right, resources, time. Sure. With Remington all. going away, like you were talking about, in the bankruptcy and everybody cloning them, the 700 has been the standard go-by for every action. But we tell people get brand new into hunting. A Tika T3 is a really good yeah. rifle from the get-go. Um, and if you can upgrade it and get a new stock, but that action and that bolt are so smooth – um, and Bergara. Bergara and Tika are probably two of my favorite ones now outside of, a you know, if you're going with a defiance action and building some custom thing that costs a ton of money. But from a factory, the Bergara and the Tika, to me, are two really accurate rifles right out of the box. Bergara, I think their barrels are better, and Tika, I like their actions better. But um, you can't go wrong with either. And the fact that now you can get a a Grapo stock for Tika. Well, you've you've you you could have for several years now. It's yeah. not brand new, but I like that. That it's hitting that price point. You can go get a T three from Sportsman's Cabela's or any place for seven or eight hundred, and then upgrade it and have a really really good rifle out of the box, or you know somewhat out of the box without having to change and and bed it or different um, triggers and stuff. It's it's relatively good. We could keep going on and on. Um, we talked a lot about the military, and I think it's important because hopefully this shares with everybody. Um, we're talking about a hunting stock, uh, a shooting stock, and we're talking about gray bow in general, how it can help you. But uh, more importantly, this is hopefully instills the value of putting that foot – continually in front of each other don't stop don't quit um you know channel that inner warrior and uh, don't take no for an answer hopefully that you are a believer um in our lord and savior and with his power and with his trust and with his guidance and the the strength and the mental fortitude um that we need nowadays now more than ever uh, keep putting that left foot in front of the right foot and keep plugging along. Is there anything that you'd like to share, Ryan? We we really appreciate, we know how busy you are um, jet setting across the U.S. and uh, being a successful businessman. Can you leave us with any parting words before Mikey closes us out? Mm. Well, I don't know if I have any great words of wisdom, but... Um, I think more now more than ever, like you said, people need Jesus. We are living in a world where people have no idea 
what they're doing and they they're lost and they're confused and they have nothing to hold on to and uh jesus is what you hold on to and his teachings and his word <coughs> and uh without that you got you're just swimming in a sea with no with no land at all and you're going to drown so uh, that's, I guess, what I'd leave us with. There's so. nothing better than those words. <laughs> there is nothing better. Um, before we go into Mikey, <laughs> there's one thing. You, you've you coined a term for Graybo, the people's stock, right? People's rifle stock, yeah. People's rifle stock. People's yep. rifle stock. I love it. I'm sold. I'm sold. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to get you the Phoenix. All right. And we'll build you a rifle. I'll build I'm, you one. I'm, build, I'm building a rifle. Oh, here I go. Here I go. All right, Lord. We just, uh, we just are so thankful, Lord, that we can sit in a on the couch, Lord, and have a podcast and just talk about real life, Lord, and just all the attributes that you instill within us and also the power and the the strength that that you that you give it give us within our our soul, Lord, to overcome so many things, Lord. And right now, Lord, I just pray for every military person that's out there, Lord. Give them the strength, Lord, give them the encouragement, Lord, and just we know that th- there's struggles that are real out there, Lord, and, and we've had some other friends, we have some members of CHA that you know, they do things for suicide for our veterans, Lord. And I just ask, Lord, that any military person out there or that is struggling, that is thinking those thoughts, Lord, that you would just meet them right now in that place, Lord, and just help them to find somebody that they can go talk to and to uh, have a, a paradigm shift in their in their fortitude, Lord, to, to come meet you, Lord, and, and, to, and, to, and to see the grace and the love and everything that you give, Lord. And I also ask, Lord, that you bless our country, Lord, because... As we know, this is trying times, and we know across the world is trying times. And I just ask, Lord, that you would just guide our our leadership, Lord, our administrations, Lord, our, our, our government leaders all over the world, Lord, that, that you would just uh, somehow, through your wisdom, Lord, your strength, Lord, that you would meet them to bring your glory for their countries, Lord, and their citizens and all the people that are underneath them. And, Lord, I just ask all the business owners, Lord, that struggle, Lord, with, with businesses. We know we're coming out of covid there's material shortages. There's all kinds of other things that are happening, you know, with employees not wanting to work and all these conflicting priorities, Lord. So I just ask that you would just help each of these business owners, Lord. And I just also thank you for this opportunity to come and, and, and have this fellowship and to build this friendship, Lord. And I just ask that you would also bless all of these listeners, Lord, just meet them wherever they are, Lord, to give them what they need. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.